Hello and welcome to Facing Grace. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Ames. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about the dark history of lynching and race massacres in the United States. Stay tuned. Okay, so before we get started with this episode, just as a content warning, it might be a bit graphic as I'm going to be speaking about some pretty heavy things related to lynching and massacres. So just wanted to put that out there as an FYI. But I do think it's important to discuss because there is a lot of important historical information. I'm also going to look at the Jackson State Massacre, which was suggested by Chief, one of our listeners, and the Colfax Massacre as well, among other things. But let's start with lynching. So I think most historians would basically agree that lynchings were a method of social and racial control that was really meant to terrorize black Americans into submission and into basically an inferior racial caste position. And they really became widely practiced in the U.S. South from about 1877, which was kind of the end of the post-Civil War Reconstruction, all the way up through the 1960s. So a typical lynching would involve basically a criminal accusation, which was, of course, often dubious, uh, usually against a black person. They would arrest them, and then there would be an assembly of what was called the lynch mob, which was basically intent on subverting the normal constitutional judicial process that we are supposed to have in the U.S. So essentially, victims would be seized and then they'd be subjected to basically everything you could imagine, physical torture, which usually would end in them being hung from a tree and set on fire. And more often than not, victims would be dismembered and then mob members would basically take pieces of their flesh and bone as souvenirs after the lynching. So in a great many cases, the mobs were actually aided and abetted by law enforcement, which a lot of times were the same people. So officers would basically leave a black inmate's jail cell unguarded, and and this would allow for the mob to come in and grab them from the cell and basically drag them out and do whatever they wanted with them. So what would sort of trigger lynching or what would cause somebody to lynch other people? Well, one of the main trespasses, which occasion was real, but oftentimes it was imagined, was sort of this claim of sexual contact, right, between a black man and a white woman. And I know we talked a little bit, I talked a little bit about this last, in last week's episode with interracial dating, but this kind of trope, right, of this hypersexual uh, black male uh, was sort of like a, a common thing and sort of that contrasted with an innocent white woman. So that sort of was like one of the main things that a lot of white supremacists were, were pushing, this idea of that, how dare, you know, white man touch a nice, uh, innocent white woman. So according to the Equal Justice Initiative, the EJI, about 25% of lynching victims were accused of some type of sexual assault against white women. And then another 30% were generally accused of, of crimes like murder. So how many lynchings actually took place in the U.S.? Well, because of the nature of lynchings, a lot of, of summary and a lot of actual numbers 
are really not quite sure. For decades, the most comprehensive total actually belonged to the archives at the Tuskegee Institute, which tabulated about 4,743 people who died at the hands of U.S. lynch mobs, and that was roughly between, as I said, 1877 and then about 1970. Unsurprisingly enough, lynching was most concentrated in the former Confederate states, and especially in those with large Black populations. So, Again, looking at the EJI data, Mississippi, Florida, Arkansas, and Louisiana had the highest state rates of lynching in the U.S. And Mississippi, Georgia, and Louisiana, obviously those are states that were heavily concentrated uh, with African Americans, and those are also uh, states that had large Confederate uh, populations. So... Adding to the this whole macabre nature of, of the scene, lynching victims were typically, as I mentioned, dismembered into pieces as kind of trophies for a lot of these, these mob members. And in his autobiography, W.E.B. Du Bois writes, actually it was about, he was writing in particular about an 1899 lynching of this guy, Sam Hose in Georgia. And he reported that the knuckles of the victim were actually on display at a local store in Atlanta. And that a piece of the, the man's heart were, it was actually presented to the state's governor. So as you can imagine, you get the idea that these were really, really, really intense things. Uh, and another lynching, another report in 1931 in Missouri, there's a lynching of a man named Raymond Gund. And the crowd, they said, was around 3,000 or 4,000 people, and at least a quarter of them were women and children as well. Hundreds of of kids were there. And a lot of times people would would turn out and sort of watch this and watch it as entertainment because they thought, they genuinely thought that the person that was being lynched, again, more, more likely than not, these people were innocent, but they felt like, you know, this was just punishment for whatever it is that this black person did. So these were, these were really common things. And of course, lynching was not the only way to sort of uh, control, if you will, these communities of colors. Uh, A lot of communities of free blacks also faced constant threat in addition to lynching also race riots and and pogoms of basically just mobs mobs of of white people you know typically in started in the 19th century again after sort of after reconstruction era uh that was sort of the big era of these these lynch mobs and i know i mentioned for example black wall street in tulsa in another episode uh that was a situation of not so much lynching but just these these mobs coming in and destroying areas uh that reconstruction period that that followed the civil war that was certainly one of i think people could probably agree it was one of the the worst most really violent eras in american history because during that time Thousands of African Americans were killed by basically domestic terrorists. I mean, groups like the KKK who really they wanted to bring back sort of the good old days of the South. So a lot of these massacres and a lot of these race riots really came during that period of time. And for many historians, one of the worst examples of this violence actually occurred uh, with the Colfax Massacre of 1873. So to sort of talk a little bit about that. The massacre took place really against the backdrop of a lot of racial tensions following the the heavily contested Louisiana governor's race of 1872. 
So Republicans had narrowly won the contest and retained control of the state, while white Democrats were really angry over this defeat, and they basically vowed revenge. So in Colfax Parish, as in many, many areas of Louisiana, they organized a white militia to basically directly challenge the mostly black state militia that was under control of the governor. So Colfax Parish really reflected, I guess you could say, the political and racial divide in states like Louisiana. So, for example, it's 4,600 voters in that election were split. Pretty much approximately 2,400 were black Republican voters and then 2,200 were white Democratic voters. So on March 28th, Basically, local white Democratic leaders called for armed supporters to basically help them take over the Colfax Parish Courthouse from the black uh, militia and the black. And also there are also some white white militias, well, white members of the, the GOP. So the Republicans responded by urging their mostly black supporters and militia to to defend the courthouse. And the first day, nothing really happened. But then. Several days later in April, there's about 300 armed white men. Most of them are members of, of course, the KKK and there are other white supremacy groups in the area as well. And they ended up attacking the courthouse building. So it sort of went back and forth. The militia had a cannon. Uh, The white supremacist fighters came with more men and more guns. And... In the end, it ended up being pretty messy. Approximately 150 African-Americans were killed. Uh, those those who were not killed during the actual courthouse standoff, a lot of the white supremacists basically went around the, the parish and grabbed them from their homes and beat them up or murdered them. So it ended up being essentially a, a massacre. And about three, I think they said three or four, of the white supremacists were killed so clearly it was a one it was really a one-sided battle that really resulted in a lot of fear for uh, african americans in in that part of louisiana and really in, in other parts of the state as well but these types of things were definitely not uncommon during that time uh one of the most i think terrifying examples that erupted more more than a century ago when was an incident that I think a lot of people don't know about because these are things that, again, as I always say, they don't really appear in history books. But it was an incident where white supremacist soldiers and police actually hunted down and killed about 60 black men in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. And the murders are part of a really carefully orchestrated coup that actually toppled a multiracial government in one of the South's most progressive black majority cities. So like a lot of police assaults against black people throughout American history, really the goal was more than just punishment and humiliation, right? The goal was to prevent black citizens from essentially exercising their constitutional rights. So a little history about it. So in 1898, the coup essentially capped this months long white supremacy campaign in North Carolina that was intended to strip black men of the right to vote and basically remove them from public office forever. And the prime target was Wilmington, where at that time, black men served as councilmen, mayor, magistrate, police officers. It was actually a city with a thriving black middle class. And there were about 65 doctor, black doctors, lawyers or educators. It was a really successful area. 
And I should just say as a side note that today in North Carolina, actually conservatives in the state legislature have have actually continued to sort of try and squash the black vote through things like voter suppression, also racial gerrymandering as well, um, and different different things that have really uh, sort of been deemed as unconstitutional, but they're still finding ways to do that, which I think would be an interesting thing to discuss, and we'll probably uh, tackle that in another episode as we get closer to to the election. But back to the 1898 coup. So it was plotted by white politicians and businessmen who obviously would not have been able to do it without help from from the white supremacists and soldiers as well as police. And they essentially led these vigilantes on a killing spree in November of that year. And this came after the white supremacists had essentially bullied the police chief into firing all 10 of its black uh, policemen. So as part of the coup, the white supremacists banned these leading black uh, political allies from Wilmington, basically by forcibly evicting them from office and then replacing them with coup members. And the militiamen actually escorted a lot of them to train stations at gunpoint. And in the weeks after all of this, more than 2,000 African-Americans fled Wilmington. So it had basically gone from being a black majority city to a white supremacist city overnight. And it was actually, believe it or not, it's it's the most successful and lasting coup in American history. And it really instituted white supremacy as this official state policy for, I would say, at least half a century. And it really prevented black citizens from voting in significant numbers until the the passage of the Voting, Voting Rights Act in 1965. So just to give you an idea, two years before this happened, there were 126,000 black men registered to vote in North Carolina. Four years after the coup, the numbers fell to 6,100. So after all of this happened, no black citizen served in public office in Wilmington until 1972. So that's almost 100 years later. No black citizen from North Carolina was elected to Congress until 1992. No one was prosecuted or punished ever for the killings or the violence that happened. Uh, President William McKinley, he was uh, president at the time, he ignored pleas from a lot of black leaders uh, who were basically asking him to send in some type of federal marshals or just U.S. troops or anybody to to protect the black citizens in North Carolina. But he did not he didn't do any of that. So the coup, I guess you could say, was really the natural outgrowth of North Carolina and in America's long history of relying on on white police to basically perpetuate white supremacy and a lot of uh, sort of create fears of black uprisings and create fears that black people would would get into power. Uh, But It's, again, a really interesting thing to to look at. I mean, uh, several years before all of this, there were white supremacist newspapers in North Carolina that started publishing these really hysterical stories warning, of course, falsely that an army of well-armed soldiers, well-armed slaves are going to march up uh, to North Carolina to kill white people and basically torch the city and and launch, you know, slave rebellions. And so obviously, as a result of that, then you started seeing a lot of innocent slaves being lynched or being seized by police and vigilantes in different North Carolina towns. And 
uh, actually during that time there were four slaves that were accused of plotting an uprising of course it wasn't true but they were accused of it and they were rounded up by police and they ended up being decapitated by a white mob and they actually put their heads they put the heads mounted on these poles along a public highway to basically prevent other slaves from doing the same and the really crazy thing about that is that that area was a it's a public highway and it was actually known as niggerhead road until the 1960s so you kind of get an idea and i'm not trying to pick on north carolina but there just happens to be a lot to talk about uh north carolina uh you can kind of get the idea of how a lot of this stuff carried over for decades right so as i was saying with the with the coup so after the coup happened the city fired the black policemen they replaced uh, basically everybody with white supremacists the mayor and the council people and all of that and the white police really enforced these new city policies that essentially were pro-white supremacy and any black citizens that happened to still be around the area were essentially forced into obeying these Jim Crow laws that were that were put forth by the white supremacy uh, majority. So <clears throat> during the, the whole 1898 campaign, white police would sort of go out on these these rides and then basically terrorize any black men that they could find. They would threaten to kill them if they dared register to vote. So they they had a way of sort of convincing, strong, strong arming these people, these black people into not voting, not participating in elections. So in this manner, they were able to maintain control. The white supremacists and the police were able to maintain control of Wilmington and, and other areas as well. But, you know, if if you are to think, if people really think that, okay, this is 1898 and that stuff, you know, that was over 100 years ago, all of that stuff sort of stops then. Uh, surprisingly enough, or maybe not even so surprisingly, Wilmington, North Carolina was actually in the news a couple months ago. In June of this year, there were actually three Wilmington police officers who were fired after recording, there's a recording that came out in which they were using a lot of racial slurs. And one officer actually said something along the lines of, we got to go out and start slaughtering black people and wipe them off the fucking map. So it's true that some things change, but some things, they still, they still stay the same. So I think when we look at history, when we look at things that have happened, I think it kind of helps us understand why things are the way they are today. Okay, so I do want to look at some events from the 20th century. As I mentioned in the opening, I I got a really good suggestion uh, to talk about the Jackson State incident. And we've sort of heard, I think, these stories before, right, where a group of angry students there's gunfire from the authorities young lives are cut short so it and it actually sounds a lot like the kent state shooting right in may 1970 which a lot of people know about the students protesting the vietnam war but actually the jackson state shooting happened 10 days later in a predominantly black college in the south so basically what happened was 
Police fired for about 30 seconds on a group of students at Jackson State in Mississippi, and they ended up killing two students and wounding 12 others. And the tragedy was essentially, it was a culmination of increasing friction among students and local youth and, and law enforcement. So on the evening of May 14th, African-American youth were reportedly allegedly pelting rocks at white motorists who were driving down the main road through campus, which was, I guess, frequently in a state of, of confrontations among black and white Jackson students. So tensions were, were pretty high because there'd been a rumor spread around campus that Charles Evers, who was a local politician and also the civil rights leader and brother of the deceased Medgar Evers, the rumor was that his wife, him and his wife had been killed, and the situation really escalated when non-Jackson State uh, students actually came to campus and started to sort of stir up trouble, if you will. So police responded to a call, and a group of students and non-students threw rocks and bricks at the officers, and then I guess police started going to this place called Alexander Hall, which I guess was a dorm for, for women. So according to this 1970 report from the President's Commission on Campus Unrest, the police ended up firing more than 150 rounds, which is, I mean, that's a lot, you know? And an FBI investigation revealed that about 400 bullets or or pieces of bullets had been fired into Alexander Hall. So the shooters claimed that, that there was a sniper in the dorm and that they were just trying to shoot to to kill a sniper but uh after further investigation it really seemed to be insignificant evidence of of that claim so the two young men who were gunned down were philip gibbs who was a junior at jackson state and also the father of of an 18 month year old child and there was james earl green who was a high school senior and the event continues to really leave a mark on, on campus and on the university. And even today, passerbys can see the bullet holes actually in the dorms. And there's, I guess, a, a plaza on campus that commemorates the victims of the shootings. So even today, Jackson State students, they learn about the shootings, right, in, in mandatory orientation classes. and. I guess in 2010, Jackson State actually held a 40th anniversary memorial to really pay tribute to the victims of the shooting. So the event brought, I guess, several alumni who attended Jackson State in the 1970s, and some of them had actually been injured. So the thing that's really telling in these incidents is that everyone has, of course, heard of a set of Kent State in Ohio, but few people really talk about Jackson State, even though it was the same same year and just a few days later. But these types of things that often only affect people of color, right? They never seem to make it into history books. And yet, you know, while nowadays we might not be facing lynch mobs, you know, in the the decades, the five decades since the shootings, obviously problems of police violence against young men of color has really persisted. And we know that African men and boys are two and a half times as likely as their white counterparts to face death by police shooting. And the rate is highest, of course, for young black men who are in their, their 20s. And it really, you know, constitutes a leading cause of death for, for this demographic. So obviously in recent days in recent months we've seen once more a lot of the horrors of the this kind of, of violence and 
you know, we have, for example, Ahmed Aubrey in, in Georgia several months ago, right? That's something that received national attention. But I mean, in that case, the men were charged. They were a former police, police officer and his son. But that, you know, that really didn't come out until months after they they shot uh, Ahmed. So, I mean, I think none of this is really unfamiliar to a lot of people, particularly people in, in communities of color. Um, and sometimes I think these cases get dismissed as like, oh, it's just one-off incidents. This, this type of thing doesn't happen or this only happened, you know, back in the 50s or 60s. But it's not true. So I think confronting the history of events like the Jackson State shooting or really any of these events would make such a, I don't know, I think it would make it easier for people to sort of understand the history and sort of understand why things like this keep uh, keep happening. So, yeah, I mean, I think then the question becomes like, well, where where do we go from here? Well, I mean, interesting enough, there's an anti-lynching bill that was a hot topic this summer. Uh, from 1882 to the 1980s, Congress actually failed to pass any type of anti-lynching legislation 200 times. But uh, this year, there it was in the news. There's a lot of talk. Um, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Tim Scott, who are actually the only three African-American members of Congress, they led an unanimous passage of the legislation in the chamber in 2018 and 2019, and the House of Representatives actually passed it by 410 to 4 uh, in a vote in February, and they renamed it for Emmett Till, who was the, the 14-year-old boy who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955. But that was the only change. They just changed the name, and then they returned it the, to the Senate. They returned the bill to the Senate. But Senator Rand Paul actually objected to the bill, and it ended up stalling. And he basically, I guess, argues that the anti-lynching legislation is drafted too broadly and that it could define minor assaults as lynching. So the right, so this, this struggle sort of uh, continues and they're still working on it and it's still uh, to, be, to be determined. But <clears throat> I think, yeah, and as we continue, as we move forward in 2020, uh, obviously we've seen a lot of protests and different uprisings this year. Uh, but I will say, interesting enough, the protests this year, the ones in 2020 and the ones in, in recent years, they do resemble, obviously, some of the ones that we've seen in 1940s or 1960s in, you know, a lot of ways. They kind of grew out of this this simmering hatred, you know, seated in sort of this long, festering history of violence and police brutality against African-Americans. And certainly this year, you know, we've seen George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey and and a lot of victims but you know in 2020 most protests they have been peaceful and even more interesting too nowadays I think the demonstrations are are really markedly interracial I think you know you see a lot of people obviously I haven't been in the states recently but I've just been seeing from from people who have attended protests and and pictures uh from my friends that a lot of them are you know African-American people Asians Latinos white people everybody you know is kind of coming together on on a lot of these issues which is great so it's sort of all across the U.S. all across the world even different areas cities people are blockading bridges highways gathering in front of the white house so i think it kind of suggests this new phase of opposition that's really uniting groups that did not have a lot in common for for much of american history so i think maybe that's a really good good start
So to learn, if you're interested in learning more about lynching, I definitely recommend checking out the NAACP page. And also there's an interesting PBS special called Lynching in America that also talks a lot about the, the history as well. Okay, so now is time for Ask a Black Friend. So a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with one of my friends who lives in the Bay Area, and we were talking about protests and um, just some of the different uh, yeah protests that's been going on around the U.S., and she said something to me, sort of a question slash statement that I thought would would be interested to talk about and she was sort of uh I guess turned off if you will about how some of the protests how you know we've seen in pictures that there's been some looting and and violence and so she was sort of saying well isn't the isn't that type of thing setting a bad example for young people of color wouldn't it be better for them to see peaceful protests or or gatherings that aren't instigating violence because doesn't that just feed into the stereotype of of people of color being violent and sort of uh wanting to destroy things so i don't know i mean i think this is like this whole thing of like violent protests i think has become like a talking point i guess for a lot of people i think that I've definitely heard some people sort of say, oh, you know, I would love to get involved in protesting or whatever, but they're just, they all seem violent and I can't condone that type of thing. I mean, yeah, I think in any type of anything, there's always going to be a few protests or a few events that get out of control. But I wouldn't say, I really don't think that most of the protests are violent. I don't think the looting and burning is happening at most of them, I would say it's probably a very, very small portion. And in fact, they, there's also been reports that have shown that actually a lot of the the violence has actually been instigated and started by not by Black Lives Matter people or not by the protesters themselves, but from outside groups or outside people coming in and sort of stirring the pot. So I don't know. I don't I, I think that you know, and what, protesting, I get that. I don't think it's for everybody. You know, not everybody wants to go out there and, and protest. And especially now with COVID, I understand that that can be definitely a scary thing. But I mean, I also think that that's not really a good reason not to get involved. I think if people say like, oh, yeah, I would go protest, but I saw a picture of one protest that got violent, so I'm not going to go to any protest. I think that's not necessarily the best the best reason. But as I've as I you know have said before, for people that don't want to protest or for people that really do think all uh, these protests are violence, I'm violent. I'm not getting involved. There's other ways to get involved. You know, there's other ways to be active. Obviously, by educating yourself about different things, by going out and speaking with friends, by watching, you know, documentaries, by writing letters to, uh, your congress people, by donating to organizations that really fight, uh, racial inequality. There's a lot of ways to to get involved. So yes, yeah, certainly. Certainly the the issue of, of protesting and this idea of like violent versus nonviolent protesting is is constantly an ongoing conversation. 
So to finish this week's uh, episode, I wanted to uh, actually have a quote from Senator Kamala Harris and hopefully future vice president. She obviously worked on the anti-lynching bill, as I mentioned with Cory Booker. And she said uh, something that I really liked. She said, let's speak the truth. People are protesting because black people have been treated as less than human in America because our country has never fully addressed the systemic racism that has plagued our country since its earliest days. It is a duty of every American to fix it. No longer can some wait on the sidelines hoping for incremental change. So I think that's really well said. And I think that yeah, now is a really good time for, for things to start changing. So that's all for today. Thank you for joining me and I hope to see you next week.